Jenny. Hi, Nancy. Welcome to episode 66 of the Front Porch Book Club. The Front Porch Book Club is a podcast that meets twice a month. We like to dig deep into the relationship between characters and the worlds they live in. Grab your book and iced tea and join us on the Front Porch. Today we interview Professor James Kerlinzi about our book, The Island of Missing Trees. This is such a great and fun interview. And Professor Kerr Lindsay, or James, as he invited us to call him, he is a fascinating person to talk to about the context and background of the Island of Missing Trees. He's a scholar whose research focuses on conflict, peace, and security, particularly in Southeast Europe. He's authored or edited over a dozen books and more than 70 articles and book chapters. Some of his major works focusing on Cyprus are The Cyprus Problem, What Everyone Needs to Know, Crisis and Conciliation, A Year of Rapprochement Between Greece and Turkey, EU Accession and UN Peacekeeping in Cyprus, Resolving Cyprus, New Approaches to Conflict Resolution, An Island in Europe, the EU and the Transformation of Cyprus. This is with Hubert Fostman and Fiona Mullen. The Government and Politics of Cyprus, also with Hubert Fostman. And the Work of the United Nations in Cyprus with Oliver Richman. James has worked at the Royal United Services Institute, the world's oldest independent security and defense studies think tank, and at the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. He has also served as an advisor to a number of governments and international organizations, including the United Nations and the Council of Europe. He appears regularly in the media and has been interviewed by many leading international news organizations, such as the BBC, CNN, Reuters, United Press, The Economist, The Guardian, The New York Times, Radio Free Europe, Sky News, The Times, and The Wall Street Journal. He has a Bachelor's of Science in Economics from the University of London and an MA and PhD in International Conflict Analysis from the University of Kent. He's held visiting posts at the London School of Economics and Political Science, the University of Pristina, the University of St. Cyril and Methodist, and the University of Nicosia, and a research associate at the Center for International Studies, Department of Politics and International Relations, University of Oxford. I know listeners will be interested in hearing his vast knowledge on the topics of conflict, peace, and security in Cyprus, because that's where our book takes place. He also consulted with the author when she was writing The Island of Missing Trees, and he's going to talk about that. We also learn about his personal connection with Cyprus. This is a fun and fascinating interview, Nancy. It really is. So let's get to it. Welcome, James, to our front porch. Hello there. How are you? Tempted to say good evening, but I know that it's uh, yeah a big time difference between us all, but uh, lovely to be joining you. Yes. Well, we're thrilled to have you on our front porch today and to learn more about the conflict in Cyprus. But first, I'd like to hear about what brought you to becoming a scholar in the field of conflict, peace, and security in Southeast Europe. 
Oh gosh, uh, where where do I start? Um, yeah, without without taking up too much time, it was just one of those. Um, I, I'd always been interested in in politics as a child. I mean, it, it sounds sort of quite sad, but um, <laughs> one of my first memories was watching the nineteen seventy nine general election in 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 Britain, and I was like seven years old. And I was just really fascinated. And then the 80s were an odd time in in the world. You know, we're getting to the end of the Cold War. But, you know, I often say for people who work on conflict that everyone has sort of... um, some sort of conflict that sort of brings them into the subject. And funny enough, even though I, I do Southeast Europe, the one that was really big for me in, in the 1980s was Lebanon, uh, which is actually very close to, to Cyprus, which is where, where I'm working on. And I just became really interested. And then it was just pure chance. My father moved out to Cyprus. Uh, he had a separate business partner in the late 1980s. And then the family moved out here. And I just became completely fascinated with with this island, and um, the rest, as they say, is history. I just I, I just got really really involved in in it and wanted to learn more about this this conflict and what it was all about. So it, it was just one of those things that sort of it just grabbed me and uh, hasn't really let go ever since. And then you went on and majored in political science, and that carried through for an entire scholarly career for you. Yeah, I mean, so actually, I just started university when the family moved out here. And I I spent a year in the UK, and came out for a long summer holiday. And at the end of it, I'm the eldest of five children. I thought there's no way I'm going to let my three younger brothers and my sister sort of grow up on a Mediterranean island. (laughs) Uh, So I, uh, yeah, at the end of this long holiday, I I secretly went and investigated and, and remembering this was pre-internet era. I mean, it's 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 amazing for so many people to sort of, especially, you know, it, I, I guess we're all of a, a, a roughly the same age that sort of can just about remember, yeah. uh, you know, what it was like in the era before. But, you know, sorry if I've offended you in any way, but um, no, no, I yeah. think we were at that crossover, weren't we? That, you yes. know, and I, it's amazing trying to explain to my kids that, you know, uh, yeah, when I was growing up, no mobile phones even. I mean, it was if you if you if you're meeting up on a Saturday night to go out with your friends, you arrange in advance and you have to be there on time. There's no running late or anything. <laughs> right. You just have to. Uh, so all of this is just a very long sort of winded way of saying that I, I sort of investigated in London University, where I was studying at the time, did a distance learning degree. So I investigated and at the end of the holiday, I said to my parents, look, I'm not going back. And it was like shock horror. You can't possibly do that. You're throwing your future away. And I said, look, don't worry. Uh, London University has got this degree. I should get exemption because I did my first year internally. And they thought, all right, let's let's give this a go. And uh, it was just an amazing experience because it meant that I drew even more on what was going on around me. And and as I say, this was pre-internet era. I mean, they just sent me a reading list, said, order up your books and we'll see you at the end of the year at the British Council, which I, I don't know if the US has a, an equivalent, but it's like the cultural ins- sort of outreach in in the UK. It's got offices all around the world and and, and things. And it's where they do sort of British exams and stuff. And uh, just so I finished up my degree doing it that way. So it was it was a fascinating, but it meant that I really then draw on even more on Cyprus and 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 become even more immersed in this problem on on what is actually a rather small island. I mean, if anyone, you know, your listeners aren't aware of it, if they don't sort of try and pick it out on a map, you know, it's right at the eastern end of the Mediterranean. And it's 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 a small place, but it's a place with an absolutely fascinating history. In our previous episode, Linny and I were talking about how we were pretty little 
during the setting of this book in 1974, when Turkey invaded Cyprus following the Greek-backed coup d'etat. Tell us about Cyprus in the 20th century and what led to this mm. conflict. Okay, so I mean, to simplify it, and I mean, any any Cypriots listening will probably sort of be sort of shaking their fist and saying, no, 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 <laughs> you've missed out this, that and the other. But I mean, it's always the way it goes. But essentially, I mean, this is, this is a conflict between Greek and Turkish speakers, Greek and Turks. On, on the island. And, and roughly speaking, we, we still tend to work off the figures from 1960. So 80% of the population are Greek Cypriot, 20% are Turkish Cypriot. It's a little bit more complex. There's a three small religious communities here. So without wishing to leave them out, the Maronites, the Latins and the Armenians. But essentially what we're talking about is this conflict between Greeks and Turks. And at the end of the 19th century, uh, Cyprus had been under Ottoman rule, so Ottoman Turkish rule and Britain took over control. And the Greek Cypriots at that point then said to Britain, well, look, our national aspiration as an island, as Greeks living in Cyprus, is we want to unite with Greece, which was then in the process of building as a state. And Britain said, look, no, no, we can't do this. You know, it's it's not our power to give it to you. And then through a series of events, Britain actually then took sovereign control of, of, of the island. And the Greek Cypriots then upped their campaign in the 1950s and said, listen, we want to unite with Greece. Uh, the Turkish Cypriots said, no, this is absolutely unacceptable. Why don't we divide the island between Greece and Turkey? And as it looked like it was becoming more and more of a civil war, this was the height of the Cold War. Greece and Turkey were allies in NATO. So essentially the decision was, right, OK, rather than give it to Greece or divide it between Greece and Turkey, we'll make it an independent country. And so the Republic of Cyprus was created and it had quite a complex constitutional system to give power to these, these two communities. And all this was then guaranteed by Britain, Greece and Turkey. What, if anyone's interested in learning more about it, well, you know, we call the guarantor powers. Uh, so in 1960, this is really um, the situation. And unfortunately, the Constitution, within about three years, for all sorts of reasons, there were various elements of tension, broke down, and fighting broke out. And in early 1964, a UN peacekeeping force was put in place. The UN was also given authority to try and find a political solution. It didn't work out. And what we saw in 1974 was that because there'd been a military coup d'etat in, in Greece, as, as, as you mentioned, uh, the Greek government said, right, OK, we're now going to try and bring about the union of Cyprus and Greece. And at that point, they launched a coup d'etat in Cyprus and Turkey said, right, OK, we're going to invade. And that's essentially how Cyprus was divided. And so if you look at the map today and you see the sort of dividing line and where the UN is, I mean, as I say, the UN had arrived about 10 years earlier, but after the dust had settled from the invasion in 1974, this is this is what we saw. And, and obviously, this is the whole backdrop to to the book. Yeah, it's, it's not 1974 on its own. It's dealing with about 20 years of events from the, the Greek Cypriot uprising against British rule to try and bring about an independent Cyprus. When that didn't work, this independence and then the, the, the steady collapse of that leading up to those events in 1974 when, when the island was divided and, and you can see the division that exists today. Yeah, what surprised me in learning about this 
is it Nicosia is still divided? Yes, yes, absolutely. So I'm I'm actually talking to you. I moved to the island relatively recently back to the island. I mean, as I say, got long standing ties, but I'm I'm living in a place called Pila, which is a, a the only mixed village, the last remaining mixed village. But the rest of the island is is exactly that. It's divided. And if you go to Nicosia, it's it's a very strange experience because uh, you go into the old town and you will be walking down a, a road and a street and suddenly you'll just get to a, a, a number of painted barrels, blue and white painted barrels, and you just can't go any further. You can cross over to the north, even at the height of the problems. There, there was one crossing point, but then... The line was opened in 2003, so it's actually relatively easy to cross between the sides these days. It's much more sort of calm in that sense. But it's a very odd experience, as I say, to be in this divided city. It's a very odd place generally because it's a holiday island. Yes. You have well over, I, I think, what I'm trying to remember what the figures were, but it's certainly over a million and a half holidaymakers who come here and uh, so Ayanapa is sort of one of the, the sort of party capitals of Europe. And you've got all these holidaymakers sunning themselves on the beach. And you've got a UN peacekeeping force here, which it, it just really does sort of emphasise just what a strange situation it is. But Nicosia, as I say, you, I think they sort of still market it as the sort of last divided capital in 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 Europe and um I mean it's, it's not a dangerous place by any means you can walk around freely you're not going to run into any problems but as I say you you could run into a dead end um and and sort of be this sort of very stark reminder in what is a very modern city um that you, you've still got this conflict in the book it talks definitely about two different people two different cultures two different religions obviously does the city still feel a lot like that and the islands still feel very divided like that? Yes. I mean, when you're on the respective sides, there's very little indication of the other culture. I mean, there's all sorts of legal issues and everything to do with this. But just to explain, I mean, from an international law point, Cyprus isn't divided. It's all the Republic of Cyprus. And then the North is, depending on the terminology you want to use, uh, it's under Turkish separate control, it's occupied by Turkey. Uh, it, it Obviously, language is incredibly sensitive yeah. when you're dealing with conflicts, and, and, and here it's no different. And depending on the audience, you know, what they will regard as, you know, the truth of the situation as they see it. Sure. But essentially, yeah. I mean, if you're in, in, in some of the, you know, for example, in Nicosia, or Larnaca is probably a better example, under Turkish Cypriot control or was where the Turkish Cypriots lived, the street names will be a bit different. They'll often be named after famous Turkish figures. But essentially these days, and this is one of the tragedies of the island, you don't have that real sense of Greek and Turkish coexisting within the same sort of space, if you like, as I say, Pila, where I'm living, it is like that. And it's it's a really, really interesting experience. And many will say this is an example of how Cyprus could be if reunited. But sadly, you, you don't see that. And I think there's also a wealth gap that one often notices. You know, the, the South, the Republic, the area under the, the, the internationally recognised government of Cyprus is substantially wealthier. The whole of the island technically is in the European Union, but this is obviously where it's really felt. In the north, it's its breakaway territory. It's been placed under embargo because they unilaterally declared independence in 1983. And there's all sorts of rulings that say that you can't trade with it. The UN Security Council has passed resolutions. 
And so that's naturally affected their development. And you, you see that quite clearly um, when, when you cross over the line that um, suddenly it becomes sort of you move from a Greek environment, although everyone here speaks English. Um, and and it's, it's a bit of a oh. quirk. It drives on the left, for example. And um, <laughs> the plugs are the same as in Britain. Um, you know, it's these sort of it's, it's these sort of strange things that people from the states or from Europe often sort of find a bit jarring when they get here. But when you cross over the line, you suddenly are in a Turkish-speaking environment, and it, it, it does look you know more run down, and you get a real sense that you've crossed from one space to another. Kind of reminds me of East and West Germany during the Cold War. Yes. West Germany, much more affluent. East Germany under Soviet rule, much less privileged. Very much. I, I, exactly. I mean, it's, it's probably not as stark as that. Mm -hmm. Cyprus is a small place. You haven't got heavy industry, for example, and things. So it, mm -hmm. it, it sort of feels... But the, the, there is quite clearly a difference. Uh, that when you when you cross the line and and you 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 have a very palpable sense of that, mm -hmm. but some people have said if they could reunite, would make it so much more interesting because you've got these two cultures that exist and so it it becomes a really interesting place and obviously Greece and Turkey are tremendously popular travel destinations in their own rights and so you know it's always that sort of sense of you know if they could, could get their act together and reunite it so sort of why go to Greece or go to Turkey come to Cyprus get both yeah <laughs> and with their own twist on it because you know it, Cyprus is rather different from Greece and Turkey in many ways even though it obviously has very close ethno-linguistic religious links with with the two countries talking about reunification as a Cyprus and conflict resolution expert do you think reunification in Cyprus is possible? So this, this, this is a real head and heart question Yeah. for, for those of us who've, who've worked on Cyprus for such a long time. I mean, I would love to think that the island could be reunited. I think that there are a lot of really good reasons for it to happen. The, the situation that exists here is deeply unhealthy unhe uh, for both societies. One thing about Cyprus is that there's, there's a, a saying for every occasion uh, not not some sort of pithy Greek or Turkish saying, but just simply people who've dealt with Cyprus over the past 60 years. I think the, the one that would come out at this moment is it's, it's not the complexity of it all, it's the infinity of it all. Cyprus isn't a complex problem to solve. Most of us who work on it know what a settlement would look like. It's been defined, it's, it's coming up for 50 years now that it's going to be a what we call a bizonal bicommunal federation. So essentially you have two federal states, one which would be essentially Greek Cypriot and the other one which would be essentially Turkish Cypriot. I mean, they did differ a little bit on their interpretation of that. The Greek Cypriots don't want it to be hard and fast that this is Greek Cypriot, that's Turkish Cypriot. They see that as like apartheid, whereas the Turkish Cypriots are much more, we would like it to be that. But essentially, that's what was agreed uh, in 1977 and has been the basis for talks ever since. So... There's definitely a model for a settlement. The problem is it's getting the political will to bring that about. And that's, that's in many ways the tragedy of the situation that we've, throughout the history of the Cyprus problem, we've had situations where one side or the other is much more willing to engage in a settlement and a time when the other one was much more hardline and didn't want to engage in that. And it's just been this succession of missed opportunities the most recent of which was was in 2017. There was UN talks that took place in Switzerland 
In fact, actually, I, I was part of the, the British team at the talk, so was there as, as an advisor. And um, it was in many ways another lost opportunity. And so I think the sad thing is many people are now asking, can this be solved? We've been trying for so long. Next year marks the, the 60th anniversary of when the UN first arrived here as peacekeepers. Uh, it's one of the longest running UN peacekeeping missions. And it's also the 50th anniversary of when the island was divided in 1974. And, you know, many people are asking half a century later, you know, after all these efforts, is it still possible? But I, I certainly like to believe that it, it is, but it, it's getting more and more difficult to see how that can happen with every passing year. So these mixed villages, do they provide any kind of vision for the future of what Cyprus might look like? I stand to be corrected, but I believe that this pillar where, where I am is the, the only one. Now, okay. you you do have some Turkish Cypriots who live in in the Republic in the in the south, but not many. And okay. I think there's very very few Greek Cypriots, very elderly, who live in the north, but very few numbers. Essentially, after 1974, there was a, a lot of internal what what we call internally displaced persons, but what the certainly the Greek Cypriots will call refugees who were forcibly displaced. And it was a highly traumatic time. I mean, 1974, we're talking at the time, it was it was roughly a third of Greek Cypriots were, were forcibly displaced. And, you know, suddenly you can imagine the effects that that has on a society, trying to integrate them and linking this to the book. I mean, you know, this this sort of comes up to the fact that because of these successive waves of fighting of tragedy, this led many Cypriots to actually leave the island and and move elsewhere. So what you have are Cypriot communities in 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 various other places. But the largest place that that many would get up and leave to would be the UK. And on the island, essentially, you, you you've got next to no places where it happens. I mean, Pila is. I think the population here is about two and a half thousand, and it's an interesting place. I mean, when when I say they sort of live and work together, I mean it. It's not heavily segregated. It's not that you you drive through the village and at one point you're it, it's all Greek speaking, and suddenly you're in a Turkish space. It's it's much more gradual than that. But essentially, you know, the south of the village is still predominantly Greek Cypriot. The north of the village is predominantly Turkish Cypriot. And this was actually, in many ways, the story of the island even before it was divided. It wasn't that. You know, you'd have streets where one house was Greek separate and next door house was Turkish separate. It was much more a case of these group of streets were Greek separates and those group of streets were Turkish separates. And by and large, they lived within the same village together, but rather separate lives, if you like. And they'd come together at certain moments and things like that. But they'd have different schools, for example. You'd obviously the the, the Greek separates would go to church. You know, they they're Greek Orthodox. And the Turkish Cypriots would would go to mosque, so it was it was sort of more a, a peaceful coexistence. And I, I think sometimes there is a tendency to romanticise how it was in the past and say it was all well and good and we were brilliant and we were such good friends. And yes, friendships did evolve, but it wasn't it wasn't quite as you know backslappy and we're all brilliant <laughs> and getting on. You know, it's sort of like Hobbiton or something like that. You know, of these. these <laughs> It, it wasn't it wasn't quite like that. But um, yeah, I think there is a hope that, you know, they can at some point come together. And uh, and I, I think that's really what we would be hoping for, a, a good, peaceful coexistence rather than, as I say, you know, best friends. Well, in the book, The Island of Missing Trees, we cover decades. So it's really interesting to hear from you the history 
that kind of happened before the book started and then the decades that follow it. We understand that you talked to the author, Elif Shafak. Am I saying her name right? Uh, yes, yes. I mean, well, it's always Elif Shafak. Yes. Okay. I won't say that again. <laughs> no, no, but you know what? I, I, I'm probably getting it terribly wrong as well. Yeah. I Yes, she very kindly dropped me a line. Yeah. So you consulted with her. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so I met her a few years before we'd been on a panel together, and I have to say she's an incredible person. And for anyone who's who's listening, who's sort of read the book and uh, or might have read some of her other works, and you know, they, they you know, there's that wonderful saying, "Never meet your heroes." I can absolutely wholeheartedly say that if anyone is is a fan of hers and gets a chance to meet her, she is a lovely person, genuinely a really really nice person very caring, very understanding, and, you know, remarkable. I, I think, you know, we we can see that as an author, e- extremely accomplished. I remember in, in the, the show where you were talking about the book, you were running through her bio, and, you know, she, she is an incredible person. There's no doubt about it. And she sort of kindly got in touch with me because I've written a lot on Cyprus and delved into the history far more than any one really should (laughs) and she just sort of said look would you mind giving a read through the manuscript and just making sure that everything tallies and so I I guess sort of historical consultant in in some way and and um, I think one of the things I I sort of must own up to is that um, for all sorts of reasons with with kids and and all my own work I don't read as much as I would really like to and this was a wonderful chance to sit down with a, an absolutely lovely book. I mean, really, really yeah. can't you know recommend it highly enough to to to, to people. It's it's a, a truly lovely and extraordinary book, and to go through it. And it's interesting because you can write a book on on history and and hope that nobody's going to notice any mistakes or things. And we all make them, even us as historians. We've got to be very, very careful to fact check what we're writing and make sure that everything. So it was just a, a chance to go through it. And it, there was very, very little there. I think, um, you know, in, in the end, it was it was just a, a, a couple of points that it was just sort of saying, look, I, I think you could change this because it might give rise to a little bit of confusion. To give an example, there was talk about British soldiers in Nicosia in 1974 and there were British soldiers in, in 1974, but anyone reading it who knew about Cyprus, that would be very confusing. Was she talking about the 1950s and the uprising against British colonial rule? It sort of made it rather difficult to follow the high timeline. So I, I just sort of said, listen, I went back and checked and there were Canadian peacekeepers in Nicosia in 1974. If you just replace it, so it's not British soldiers at this taverna talking, but it's Canadian soldiers it suddenly makes sense and it gives those who know about the island a sense of grounding as to exactly what period she's talking about. So even something small like that, which it probably would have gone unnoticed by by most readers, but to a Cypriot audience or people who know about Cyprus, it it, it could have confused the timeline a little bit. So you know, it was just something something small like that. But I mean, the fact that it's that's the sort of thing that I can point out sort of actually goes to show that really it was it was it was very very well researched and there was very little there that you know i could sort of point to but you know sometimes when you're asked to do this you feel you've really got to sort of find anything to sort of justify (laughs) that 
what you were asked to do. But it was, no, I mean, on the whole, it was very, very meticulous research. And as you said, I mean, she comes from a background of political science and, and things. And, and this has been a huge issue for both Greece and Turkey as separate countries as well in their history. So to take this on and also as a Turkish author mm-hmm. and to write sensitively, it's it's incredibly difficult because you, you, you potentially lay yourself open to claims that you're being biased. And I haven't seen claims to that effect of people sort of saying, you know, this is Turkish propaganda or anything like that. And it, it mm-hmm. certainly isn't. It, it, it's very, very even handed. And you can see that it's a cry from the heart for understanding between these two communities. Definitely a, a modern day Romeo and Juliet story of love and the structures that keep people from loving one another. So you were really reading the book for accuracy, but creatives, of course, have to balance this feeling of historical authenticity with telling a good story. Were there aspects in your reading of this book where you have had to make choices about this balance? I don't I don't really think so. I, again, it, it, it's sort of testament to her talent that she was able to tell a, a story that felt as though it could be authentic. I mean, obviously, these are fictional characters. It it would have been difficult for a Greek and a Turkish Cypriot couple to get together in Cyprus, but it wouldn't have been impossible. There were mixed marriages. They were few. They were far between, very rare. But it, it did occasionally happen. And obviously, one can imagine that there would have been even more illicit relationships that would have been going on where the, the... they would have found themselves in a very difficult situation and ostracized by the family and the, you know, moving abroad, leaving Cyprus in many cases probably would have been the only realistic opportunity for, for, for anyone who found themselves in this situation. So I think it's sort of, you know, that, that element of, of the relationship and how it came together. I mean, it, you know, it, it, it was difficult, but that becomes the basis of a book and, uh, you know, tells a very, touching story of, of this relationship set against this this divided island and um, I think it was it was very very well handled and 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 seemed plausible in the broader context of unlikely relationships that 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 would have developed certainly one of the interesting parts of the book for me was that he obviously leaves Cyprus first and then she follows and then they do live in Britain which sounds like from what you're saying, happened. That's kind of where people left if they wanted to leave the war. Can you tell us about the the community in Britain that is made up of people of Cyprus? Is it still sort of like a, a neat little community like it was before? Is it diverse? It's. I mean, it's it's a fascinating story, and 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 what you find is that in in actual fact, I mean, obviously a lot was shaped by what happened in 1974, but. The community actually dates back far further than that. I think the first Cypriots started arriving in the 1930s. And then when there was problems on the island in the 1950s during the colonial uprising that you had some people come over in the 1960s after the first wave of of serious violence after Cyprus became independent, you had some who came over. You had economic migrants as well, remembering, of course, that Cyprus was very poor when it first became independent. It was agricultural. And, you know, I often say as somebody who works on conflict, that poverty is a huge factor in in many conflict scenarios. I mean, you know, the wealthier a society gets, the less willing people are to get up in the middle of night and go and shoot their neighbour because they just 
don't like them and they feel that they've got a better deal. I mean, you know, when you've got a nice house, nice car, you, your kids go to good schools, uh, you can afford nice holidays, you're not going to jeopardize that. But when you've got a poor society, these things can 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 really have a huge effect. And so what you saw is that economic migration. So all this is to say is that what we saw in Cyprus were waves of, of migrants to the UK, largely to the UK. I mean, there are communities elsewhere. I mean, Cypriots are great travellers. So you, you will find small communities in, in odd places in Africa, for example. They're fantastic traders. Interesting. So you, you would find them. But London really became the home away from home. I mean, obviously, many Turkish Cypriots would look to go to Turkey. Many Greek Cypriots would go to Athens. But again, for all sorts of reasons, you know, real economic opportunities would really be in Britain. And because it had been a British colony, many Cypriots had British passports as Commonwealth citizens. Even if they don't have a British passport, Commonwealth citizens actually can vote, for example, in British elections or British elections. It's a strange quirk. <laughs> yeah, so it, it meant that it, it became very easy for them. And so they established communities, essentially North London. You know, you go up there today and, and you can still see there's lots of Greek and Turkish Cypriot shops and they tend to rub along quite well there. It's Again, it's not quite as necessarily as friendly as some people will tell you. But what I think is really interesting in all of this, and 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 you see this, and and United States is a really good example. So I, I've done a lot of teaching at U.S. universities over the years, and and you know many U.S. universities have got campuses in London. So I was teaching for many years at, at Boston University and Wake Forest, for example. And my students from the states will always find it really interesting when I sort of talk about sort of ethnic background and cultural heritage, because we talk about this a lot more in the UK. Yeah. But in the States, it was really interesting that obviously there's that integrationist tendency that I think you also see now in Britain that the first generation come over, they cling very strongly to their culture and they pass it on to the kids. The kids sort of have quite a lot of it, but they don't necessarily have that that sense of motherland, fatherland, whatever you would call it, home, being abroad. And then by the time you get to the next generation, the grandchildren, it's it's few, very rare that you actually have the grandchildren who can speak the language of the grandparents. And uh, you really see this in Cyprus. And so all this is to say that now you consider maybe in the 60s and the 70s was the big wave of people coming over. You're now dealing with their grandchildren and they're highly integrated into Britain. I mean, you know, they 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 they're indistinguishable. Britain is now a very multicultural place and they can only really be identified by their names and even more their surnames now because many are taking on sort of British first names and, and things. So I, I think, you know, this is this is obviously having its effects and I get a real sense. And I think as again, I think you see this a lot in the States. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the grandparents desperately want the, the children and the grandchildren to have that sense of belonging and that sort of fades and dissipates as, as the decades pass. Right. Yeah, there's certainly a certain age in adolescence where kids want nothing more than to be indistinguishable from their peers. <laughs> Anything that seems a little different is not something that they want to emphasize. As somebody once said to me, children are nature's natural fascists. <laughs> It, it's a, it's a horrible thing to say, and I say that as a dad. But I, I think you know, somebody who studies politics, it's it's actually you yes. know, but it's it's a really good point. Kids want to fit in; they don't want to feel they're different. And speaking another language, yeah. and you know, I've seen it with my children. 
that my wife comes from another country and we, we've had it with them. And now we're living in Cyprus. I mean, that's sort of really playing with their heads and, and, yeah. and things have sort of been, been foreigners. But Cyprus is actually incredibly welcoming to, 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 to foreign communities. And there's a large, large community, not only of Brits, and because of all the problems going on in, in the Middle East at the moment, you've got lots of Israelis, you've got lots of Lebanese who live here, lots of Russians, Ukrainians. So it, it, it's sort of it's, it's a fascinating place in that regard and just makes it even stranger on top of everything that you've got its own problems. But at the same time, the same time you've got these peacekeepers, but it's a holiday island. You've got its own conflict, but it's a sanctuary for all these other people escaping from other conflicts. Very interesting. Yeah, well Makes worth me a visit. want to come visit. Yeah, please do, do yeah. absolutely. Does I, the cruise I, ship stop there? <laughs> yes, there's, there's that's what I thought. Eastern Med ones. You probably don't want to be going a lot further east than Cyprus just at the moment. Yeah, it's 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 a pretty. From where I'm talking to you right now, if you probably head over what sort of 300 kilometers to 200 miles, it's it's pretty much it's Gaza. Yeah. Really? So yeah, it's it's oh, yeah. almost directly south of where where I'm talking to you oh, from now. Okay. You know, and actually, we had some friends who came over recently, and they were a bit worried. They were sort of saying, "Look, it looks terribly close on the map," and we were saying, "No, absolutely safe. Don't worry, not for yeah. a moment. You know, it, it it isn't." But in actual fact, so Cyprus is now trying to say to the United States, to Europe, let's see if we can base a humanitarian corridor to to the Middle East out of the island. Hmm. Oh, very you know, to, interesting. To set it up. Yeah, yeah. E- exactly. I think there's a tendency to overuse this phrase of sort of places is sort of full of contradictions. And they always say, I think, writing classes 101, don't do that. Don't use it. This is a place of contradictions and stuff like that. <laughs> but Cyprus, I think, you know, we, we, we have to make an exception for it because it is absolutely full of these odd contradictions. So as an adult in the novel, Daphne is involved in exhuming victims of violence and identifying the bodies of missing persons. Is that something that also is still actively happening on this island full of contradictions? Yes. And, wow. and you know, this is this is something that, yeah, so there, there is actually a body called the UN Committee for Missing Persons, which is still functioning. It's been doing a lot of work. And I think one of the things that we've seen since the island, the two sides have opened up to each other and allowed much more. I mean, it's still a difficult relationship between the sides. We haven't got unification again, but there has been a lot of moves. So the numbers of the missing has steadily declined as they've managed to find bodies uh, and return them. But it, it's extremely harrowing work. And it, 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 it's made a little bit more complicated by the fact, or rather a lot more complicated by the fact that, you know, and this is, this is where we tread on extremely sensitive territory, that 1974 took place uh, against deep, deep disruption, certainly within the Greek Cypriot community, but also within, uh, there would have been within the Turkish Cypriot community. And there were a lot of score settling that was going on uh, that was rather hidden by uh, the bigger events that were taking place. So, I mean, I, I guess this is a way of me trying to diplomatically say that some of those would have been people who went missing at the hands of the the enemy. Some of them would have been people who went missing at the hands of their own side. Right. For whatever yeah. reasons, it, right. it, it, it could have been it could have been personal vendettas. It could yep. have been political differences. So, for example, Cyprus actually has, the, on, certainly on the Greek Cypriot side, has a very large communist party. Oh, even to this day, that it, it roughly between a quarter and a third of the population 
uh, vote for the Cyprus Communist Party, and it's held government positions and everything. I mean, I mean, it's 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 communism uh, with with small C. Mm-hmm. You know, Cyprus is a very democratic place. It's a free market economy. They're very good at business and things like that. But you know, there's this sort of cultural communism, if you think. Uh, that existed and there's also a right wing and especially during the 1960s and 70s this was a a point of very very deep contention on on the island and so there was elements of score settling and this as you can imagine complicates those efforts to try and find out what happened to missing persons because you're looking in the wrong place yeah and people aren't going to admit that they they were killing people on their own side right so you know, it, it 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 becomes a very very difficult business to 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 have to manage. And and you're right, the book was talking about this very sensitive and difficult uh, issue that that the island also has to come to terms with. Mm-hmm. You know, these these missing persons, and and obviously this is this is what's referred to in the book. This is the na- the whole title of the book reflects this. Yeah, uh, she really brought in those different components that you're talking about. Now that I hear what really happened, I didn't realize that she took such a historical view on this and knowledge of it as she was talking about Daphne and the difficulties that Daphne was facing and even trying to find the bodies and the sensitivity involved with all of that. Yes, absolutely. I think that was also the point that she was making. I mean, you know, about the restaurant owners. Yes. Yeah. Oh, it just made me think of them too. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. This was on, on two levels. It was a friendship right. between Greek Greek and Turkish, which many would have frowned on. But it was also, uh, you know, a, a relationship that in a place like Cyprus, which then was a deeply conservative, like many countries at the time, mm-hmm. any suspicion of this, would have would have would have made them targets that these this was this was a gay couple and so i i think you know fortunately so much has changed although cyprus is is still behind in 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 changing its legislation Mm. it's still quite conservative on 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 that and you know many people can't express themselves as openly as they might be able to in other parts of 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 europe even even to this day but you know that that comes out quite strongly as well Mm -hmm. and so sort of emphasizes that they really would have been targets in in all sorts of ways. Well, you're very active in writing books and articles and in speaking in these issues. You also have a YouTube channel. What's the best way for our listeners to learn more about your work? Um, yeah, I mean, anyone who might be interested. I so yeah, I've got I've got a YouTube channel. I think uh, you know we, we were talking a little bit before the show how. Yeah, it's it's fabulous. I still feel incredibly <laughs> yeah. self-conscious. I mean, I'm I'm very aware that you know I'm a I'm a fifty-something sort of university professor who's, who's got <laughs> doing YouTube. I mean, but I I I, I often laugh that you know it's for, for my kids. So I, I think sort of last count, I've got about fifteen books, and that means nothing to them. I mean, but it, it, it's it's the fact that Dad's got a YouTube silver play button is that's oh. the, that to them is just you know that you know when when friends come round it's not it's not trying to show them the bookshelf or anything like that it's come and see this right. um, so I, I I suppose but I I do feel very very self conscious even even now sort of sitting in front and um your, your listeners are listening. But we were talking before if they could see what what you guys have seen. I've got my studio sort of set up behind me and 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 things like that. So uh, yeah, so the, there's a YouTube channel. I 
I do Twitter X, but like a lot of people, I mean, it's 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 in a very very disturbing place these yeah. days, which is incredibly sad because you know it was it, I I made so many friends over the years, and and it was a fantastic place to exchange information and and and, and things like that. But I do occasionally uh, still post there. But essentially, I mean, it's the, the the YouTube channel is sort of you know, and and obviously I do try and keep up with doing academic writing and things and um yeah so yeah that that's that's essentially it <laughs> i cannot recommend this youtube channel enough and we'll put links in the show notes to all of the books especially dealing with cyprus but especially the youtube channel which i think people will find so informative and this is not just about cyprus about the conflict all over the world so if you're interested in what's going on in ethiopia James has a YouTube on Ethiopia. It, it's oh, just so interesting. Cannot recommend this highly enough. Well, thanks so much. <laughs> and there's great location YouTubes too. There you are standing out by the beach and talking about what's going on in this country. Oh, I try occasionally. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I've, I, funnily enough, it's, it's, it's the weird thing. I think people have noted that there is this sort of odd thing, and I'm sure you guys have found it with, with the podcast as well. You you tend to be a little bit more adventurous when you've got a smaller audience and you're just starting out. But as you grow and you sort of realize this is what seems to work and people like, um, I think sometimes, and I, I keep telling myself, I should try and do more of, 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 of that type of thing um, because it's, it's wonderful to do it. <laughs> but now I'm sort of thinking, oh, but I've, I've improved the production values. Can I do that if I'm going out? And it's just me. I mean, it's not, yeah. you know, I don't have a production crew and somebody with a boom mic and making sure that, you know, right. and the lighting. And, and I was like, well, you have kids. They could do that for you. <laughs> seriously, really, what I should be doing. The other problem, I've got another problem, which actually I should have been doing podcasts. I'm colorblind. So, um, and, and ah. for videos and things like that, you want to do color grading. I don't dare touch it because otherwise I'm just going to have a oh. green tinge. I, I just, I know that it's so, <laughs> so if I don't get that right, when I'm out and about here in my studio, I can control it. It's for anyone who watches, it's very blue because I have no problem with blue. So that, that answers the question. People say, why did you move abroad? And you, you, it looks like you haven't changed your studio. No, because I went and found the exact same shade of blue I was using in London. So that I, I, I knew that it wasn't going to throw my camera out and, and put my, my wonky colorblind eyes to, to test. Oh, fabulous. Great. <laughs> so what are you working on next? Well, again, I mean, a lot of it is, is you know, trying to put together, you guys know, absolutely, trying to put together regular videos, podcasts. I have so much respect for anyone who, who gives this a go because it, it, it's a huge undertaking, you know, the research yeah. that goes into it, writing, you know, and so that takes up an enormous amount of time. And and I think also I've moved much more in the direction that I love the idea of public engagement. And I think, sadly, too few academics do that. Yeah. We go into our own little world and we talk to each other and we get in these, involved in these very arcane sort of debates. And there are so many issues out there. And I think we do live in a particularly worrying time for people. Uh, you know, people want to try and make sense of this very dangerous world that we're we're in, and and uh, you know, I, I like to think that in some small way I can I can help explain things, and so that's really where my interest lies now. It's that sort of public engagement, that public information of trying to say, right, okay, this is what we're seeing, maybe in Ethiopia or. Uh, you know, in Armenia, where I've just got back from, in actual fact. Oh, wow. Uh, last night, in, in, in actual fact. 
you know, and there's been a very worrying conflict there. And I, I, I think, you know, we're seeing and it, it, it is an extremely worrying time for, for all sorts of reasons. And um, and I, I like to think also, you know, we're also in an era where there's a lot of misinformation that's going around. And I think, you know, a lot of people, things like YouTube, social media is a great leveler. It It's very democratic access, but it also means that we see a lot of people who go out there and you know, produce a faceless channel and we don't know what their authenticity is, you know, what their their credentials are to be talking about it. So I, I know it sort of might sound a little bit sort of highfalutin and all the rest of it, but to say that, you know, I, I felt that as an academic, somebody who'd worked a lot on conflict and had written a lot on it to say, look, here's my face, here's my name, here are the links to who I am, go out and check out, you don't have to agree with everything I say, but I'm trying to say this in good faith and I'm putting my reputation on the line by doing it to try and provide this sort of information. And I, I'm really trying to encourage more colleagues to do it. But the trouble is, as again, you guys know, it, it, it's, it's hugely time consuming, isn't it, to, to, to put together a mm-hmm. good quality information. And it can be a bit soul destroying when you see how many people are just throwing stuff together. And, and AI is tra- transforming things, of course, in ways that, mm-hmm. but that's a whole different debate. And one thing I will say is that I think of you as a true educator in that you are able to communicate very complex ideas and topics in an extremely accessible way. And I think that there are some people in academia who, honestly, they just don't have those skills. But you are really able to convey these ideas in a way anyone is going to understand and feel like they are coming away with a better idea of what's happening. Honestly, you actually spark a lot of curiosity around what you're talking about too, because people realize, oh, wait a second, I don't understand this as much as I would like to. This is really interesting. So that's a true educator for me, someone who's able to explain, but also kind of spark the desire to learn more. And that is absolutely what I hope to to do with the channel. So it's lovely to hear that. And I mean, it really does make a difference. I know because some, I mean, as you can imagine, also some, some sort of academic colleagues sort of rather look down on this and sort of think that you know you're selling out and you know you're not you're not really a serious academic if you do something like this yep I have again so much respect for academic colleagues who put themselves out like that and I mean you know you get a little bit of ridicule sometimes but it's it's Mm -hmm. I think the more it goes that sort of people sort of do do tend to see a value to it but it it, yeah you as I say some people can be a bit snobby about it all and 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 things like that but I think in especially for the subject I'm you know I'm doing international politics we desperately need physics and stuff I love watching those channels I'm so fascinated it's brilliant isn't it it's just I and (laughs) you know that is you know I I I often say if I'd been good at maths I would have loved to have been a physicist Um, but I am so (laughs) bad at it that international relations it was As I say, it's not saying that, you know, I've, I've got a monopoly on truth, but it's to say that mm-hmm. I think we we do need more people who can go out and say, here I am. I've got the credentials to talk about this. You don't have to agree with what I'm saying, but hopefully you'll see that it's 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 well researched and, 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 and things. So, yeah, well, that's that's the hope anyway. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm so grateful for people like you. I, you know, I'm kind of blind to this whole thing of what you're working on and what you're doing and your impact, but I can certainly appreciate what it is that you're doing. And so thankful that there are people out there doing your kind of work, because I see the importance not only for Cyprus, but for our whole world, there's conflict and the need for somebody to 
kind of be able to come in and have their area of expertise and help to get people to talk and get together and problem solve and all the things that you're doing. Well, it was a pleasure. And I, I just on, on quickly on that point, I mean, this is why the, the book is so wonderful, because it, it, this becomes another really important channel of communication for people to talk about the situation that opens it up. So the more people who do this, and I think, you know, it's lovely that you guys have taken an interest in producing a, you know, a, a program on this for, for your audience to sort of say, look, you know, this is a really interesting situation exists not many people know about it but you know it's got a very traumatic history and sort of you know all of us who can work in these sort of fields and open up these issues you know there's there's all sorts of different ways and we communicate with people in so many different ways and people find different entrances to subjects so you know i think it's 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 you know it's part of the the patchwork of the world that we live in yeah, so true. It was just lovely meeting you and learning about you and what you're working on. Thank you for stopping by our front porch today. Thank you so much for the invitation. Really, it was it, I, I was thrilled to have the opportunity. It was so nice and kind to, <laughs> to invite me. Really enjoyed it. Well, I'm just impressed I didn't pick up on any of your English accent because I tried to mirror other people's accents. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody in America loves an English accent. Yeah, we do. We're going to start talking about having a spot of tea. <laughs> As I cheer you with my cup of tea. Absolutely. You can an authentic, an authentic Brit here with, with a cup of tea. Uh, you know, as, as I've been talking to you on a Saturday night in, in 7.30 at my end and, and things. But no, it was it was absolutely lovely. And I was, I was saying to my wife that when I do other podcasts, it tends to be in the realm of politics and things. And I, I thought this was, I really genuinely, it was so lovely to get this message and to sort of be invited to to, to come on the show just because I, I loved what you were doing. It just sounds so fun as well. And I think this is... This is the other thing sometimes, you know, you deal with, with tragic subjects and stuff like that, but sometimes yeah. you've yes. got to, you, it, oh it, it's nice to have and recognizing that, you know, we can talk about it in all sorts of different ways. And, um, you know, and I, I think, yeah. as I say, the, the fact that you're sort of coming at it and, you know, looking at it in a literary way, I think is, is, is wonderful. And it was just such a fun thing. And you both seem so much fun <laughs> as well. <laughs> Oh, we think we're a lot of fun. You are. I mean, it's also it's that lovely, it's that lovely sense of enthusiasm and you know genuine sort of laughter and things that sort of comes in. It's it's so refreshing. So lovely way to spend a Saturday evening. Oh, well, thank you. Well, thank you so much for stopping by. Bye bye. Oh, Nancy, wasn't he a nice man? Absolutely <laughs> engaging, charming, and so smart. Well, we got somebody with a lot of knowledge and expertise about our book. And the fact that he got to read the manuscript and talk to the author yeah. about her book and the history behind it was fascinating to me. But boy, he really shed a new light on not only the hard work of an author and putting together a book with historically accurate information it makes me appreciate the book better, but he is so knowledgeable and I'm so glad that we got somebody with his credentials to stop by and have a spot of tea with us. Yes. And literally have a spot of tea with us. <laughs> well, it was fun learning more about Cyprus and the history of the conflict and 
the current state of affairs in Cyprus, I thought, was so interesting, too. He really was able to paint a picture of what it would be like to visit Cyprus now, a fun, beautiful vacation spot with UN security forces. Just fascinating. And a haven for refugees of other conflicts in that part of the world. Yeah, really fascinating. Well, you know what next month is? Jingle, jingle, jingle. It is Christmas. Yay! (laughs) And our history of the front porch is that we do a children's book for December. Yeah. So we are going to review and talk about Marshmallow Clouds, written by Ted Kuzer and Connie Wanick, and it's illustrated by Richard Jones. Yeah, I think this is going to be a fun book. It is a children's book of 30 poems. So we've never done something like that before. We never So I'm excited to read the book. Nancy, I had to get a library card because... Yes. (laughs) It's not available on Kindle yet. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so proud to be the reason that you got a library card. I almost took a picture of myself at the library, but I am not a child, so it seemed a little overkill. Anyway... (laughs) Well, everyone, thanks so much for listening. Our website is frontporchbookclub.com. Our episodes come out twice a month on the first and third Wednesday of every month. See you next time, Lenny. Thank you, Nancy. See you later. on a roll. Don't stop her now. (laughs) Oh, dear me.